Welcome to New Evangelization, a podcast series by the National Office for Evangelization. If you have any questions, please visit us at evangelizeaustralia.com. Enjoy. Mercy, family and evangelization is what I've been praying about and thinking about. But before I start speaking about mercy, I think there's something I'd like to say first of all. For all of us who are trying to carry out the Lord's mission of evangelization, and that is how important it is to keep on keeping on doing what we're doing, to never cease encouraging one another in it, to keep that alive, because really in a lot of respects we're kind of like the first responders, giving CPR to the church, keeping it alive until divine intervention kicks in. And it always does. But Jesus needs our faithfulness in order to act, and so it's really worthwhile. But there are so many reasons for discouragement. The temptation is often there, especially in evangelization with families, to throw in the towel, at least temporarily, anyway. Evangelizing families, my gosh, but they resist. The people don't respond. Worse still, they let you down when you least expect it. Or they don't want to commit themselves. We all know what it is even though you've given your all. And sometimes we organize events and no one comes. We lack the proper resources. We don't always get it right. And then there's the criticism of everything that happens wrong. Well, it's easy to get discouraged. But St. Paul was keenly aware of the need for mutual encouragement. He knew it was no easy task to spread the good news to people, especially with families where there are often so many setbacks and so many messy situations. But he valued anyone who knew how to do just that. And I love that part in the Acts of the Apostles where Paul even nicknames Barnabas the son of encouragement. And in the letter to the Hebrews, although not directly attributed to St. Paul himself, we read, Today, as long as this today lasts, keep encouraging one another. And I think those words of encouragement are so important. So, um, and, and, and not only that, Peter, in the eyes of Jesus, well, he didn't always get it right. And Jesus, just before the Last Supper, he knew Peter wasn't made of granite. And he said to him, Simon, Simon, look, Satan has got his wish to sift you all like wheat, but I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And once you've recovered, you in turn must strengthen your brothers. Now, if that happened to the first pope, then why wouldn't it happen to us? And actually, Pope Francis is also really big on this kind of encouragement. He gave a beautiful message to us all three years ago on Palm Sunday, and he said, Don't be men and women of sadness. A Christian can never be sad. Never give way to discouragement, because ours is a joy from having encountered a person that is Jesus in our midst. And it's born from knowing that with him we're never alone in our work, even at difficult moments, Even when life's journey comes up against problems and obstacles that seem almost insurmountable. And there are so many of them. We said that three years ago, but I think it's really, really relevant today. Anyway, with that, let's venture into the role of God's mercy for families. Two weeks ago, Pope Francis had this to say at the opening of the pastoral conference in the Diocese of Rome. He said, How can we hope that young people will live the challenge of the family of marriage as a gift if they continually hear from us that it's a burden. And I agree entirely. 
In the same way, how are we ever going to get our Catholic families to become evangelizers or the homes to become real domestic churches? If instead of a gift, the whole area of faith appears more like a burden than anything else. Maybe we're lacking a pastoral of mercy. Maybe the gift of mercy is missing. Faith, Pope Francis goes on to say, does not take us out of the world, but inserts us more profoundly in it. Not like those perfect and immaculate ones who think they know it all, but as persons that have known the love that God has for us. And I think that's really a beautiful thing that he says. We don't know it all. We're all beginners in this game of evangelization. But if we could let the experience of the love of God and of mercy take hold of our hearts, we could really make a difference. And so Francis says, in this confidence, with this certainty, with much humility and respect, let us approach all of our brothers and sisters to live the joy of love in the family. I love that, to live the joy of love in the family. With this trust, we give up our niches, which shelters from the maelstrom of human misfortune. And instead, we enter into the reality of other people's lives to know the power of tenderness. Well, in a way, he seems to be treading on our comfort zone. But what he's inviting us to do is to understand that the family pastor really needs those aspects. He says, this, pose, this imposes on us the development of a family pastoral ministry capable of receiving, accompanying, discerning, and integrity, in, integrating. A pastoral ministry that permits and renders possible the appropriate scaffolding so that the life entrusted to us finds the support of which it needs to develop according to God's dream. Well, I love this message. What the Pope is doing is guiding us all to a pastoral ministry based in four actions. On the one hand, receiving the gift of God's love, of His mercy. Two, of accompanying that gift so as to make it hold and grow. Three, discerning it so that people work out for themselves what it means. And four, to integrate it into everyday life. And I think that one of the most encouraging things that has happened in my life has been to experience God's mercy for myself. To see how much of an effect it's had on me and to integrate that into my own mission. My own vocation was born of a merciful encounter with the Lord on a train at Villawood Station in Sydney, 30 years almost to the day. To cut a long story short, I felt from deep within that God was calling me to go over and speak with a refugee from Laos on that train. But actually it was more like a command that came from within. He had just sat down across from me, but I lacked the courage to do it. I stayed put. I remember saying silently, no Lord, I can't and I didn't. And I've never forgotten that. It seemed to automatically, I seemed to automatically recognize that it was the Lord that was speaking to me. Something inside me recognized the voice. Maybe it was the image and likeness of God within, I don't know, but God gave me a second chance. He gave me that mercy that even though I blew the first one, I met the guy half an hour later on Lickham Station and my life as a missionary of mercy began to unfold. You see, mercy is absolutely vital for mission, especially mission in families. It gives vitality to our works of evangelization. 
It injects enthusiasm when our spirits are flagging. It recreates us. Through it, anyone can become a bearer of God's good news. The founder of my little community, Father Jaime Bonnet, we're a community of preachers and evangelizers, but he used to often drum into us that preaching isn't so much the art of speaking, but of having something useful to say. So to be missionaries of mercy, first of all, we need to experience mercy and have something merciful to give. Mercy is particularly vital when it comes to working with families, because families, our own little domestic churches, they're often messy, there's often lots of situations of brokenness and hurting people. If we could only practice this more and more and teach it to others. Well, let me just quote it again from Pope Francis, this time from his encyclical Evangelii Gaudium. Being church means being God's people in accordance with the great plan of his fatherly love. And that means that we're to be God's leaven, God's yeast in the midst of humanity. It means proclaiming and bringing God's salvation into our world, which often goes astray and needs to be encouraged to be given hope and strengthened on the way. Well, to be God's yeast, and as heavily biblical as that word is, it means to respond to a calling, if you like, to lift up a downtrodden church, a downtrodden domestic church. Like Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is also upon us to bring a year of favour, of mercy into the world through our families. Each and every one of us is called to be the yeast that lifts up the masses. And where better to begin that than with our own families? Pope Francis then goes on to say, the church must be a place of mercy freely given where everyone can feel welcomed, loved, forgiven, and encouraged to live the good life for the gospel. Well, I love that. The church must be a place of mercy freely given. And we, from all sorts of communities or movements or parishes, dioceses and the like, we're the people who are best placed to become missionaries of mercy. Don't wait for a summons from the Holy Father, because apparently there's only two of those missionaries of mercy for the whole of Australia. I think that's a bit light, actually. But your Heavenly Father has already officially, unofficially summoned us, anointed us, and sent us. Well, what does it mean to be a missionary of mercy? I guess the first thing for us to understand is what mercy itself is. Forgive me if I'm preaching to the converted. I'm certain you guys have probably heard this quite a few times before. But the English word mercy comes from the Latin misericordia. There's two parts to the word, misery and cordia. I don't think misery needs much explanation. It's all around for all of us to see. But cordia does. It means from the heart. A cordial welcome is a heartfelt welcome. So what does divine mercy signify? It means this. Where God sees our misery, he pours out his heart. It's another way of saying being undeservedly forgiven, being let off the hook for no good reason at all. And God needs no other motivation for that than simply because it's who God is. Love and mercy. And he wants for us to convey that gratuity of love to the couples, to the mums and dads, to the kids, to the average Aussie family with all its warts with whom we work. If our evangelization is about spreading the good news of God's love, God's love and his good news, his good news will be truncated without a solid dosage of divine mercy. Perhaps we should all stop for a moment, me too, 
and take stock of how we're progressing in terms of mercy, of how well we forgive one another, are our homes places where mercy is practiced, where we forgive sin and obnoxiousness and jealousy, anger, taunting? Do we give one another a second chance to right the wrongs of the past? Do we make everyone welcome? Especially those who don't have a perfect track record. I'm sure we do. But when we extend that to our pastoral, it becomes a little bit more complex. But that's where our evangelization becomes good news. All we've got to do is figure out how we can transmit mercy and become the merciful face of Jesus to our people. But the reality is that everyone, or just about everyone, loves to be on the receiving end of mercy. It's got to be one of the most fantastic things we can ever experience. At least from my point of view, I think it is. Everybody loves receiving mercy. And I know firsthand what a difference it has made to me and to my life. So I've got a story to tell you about something that happened to me early on in my missionary life. It made me realize just how important mercy was as missionaries to experience it firsthand and the lasting effect that it had on me. Well, one of my first postings was to a Spanish school in Dublin. Well, what's a Spanish school doing in Dublin? Anyway, it was called Aliens from the little town in Valencia from which it came, which was funny because it sounded more like aliens, which was a term the Gardai, the police in Dublin, used for us foreigners. But anyway, basically it was a school for kids from Spain who wanted to learn English or for rich parents who wanted to get the kids out of their hair for a year, whatever it took. Anyway, we, a missionary priest called... Julio and myself, we were staying in the janitor's house at the school. We had nowhere else to stay. One day I misplaced the keys to the house. I couldn't find them anywhere and I was really worried. I told Julio, the priest, I said, I told him what had happened. He didn't seem too concerned. They'll turn up, he said, don't worry. All he told me was just don't tell Susan. Susan, by the way, was an administrator. She was the administrator, hire and fire, the honorary enforcer of law and order in the school. She was a bit of a tough cookie, but personally, I thought she had more of a vocation as a policewoman than as the administrator of the school. Anyway, the instructions were clear. Just don't tell Susan. So what did I do? I walked out into the courtyard straight after talking to Julio. Who should I meet? Coming across the asphalt towards me was none other than Susan herself. Well, I froze. Well, she was seen to be walking straight for me. I thought she must have found out. Is something wrong, she asked. Yeah, I felt like it was a trick question, you know, you know. A police friend of mine used to always say that his motto was never ask a question if you don't already know the answer. Yeah. So I blurted it out, just like that. I said, I can't find the keys to the house. Well, I'll never forget her answer. She said, you what? <laughs> you lost the keys? You realize, don't you, she said, that those keys, which were to the house, the janitor's house, well, they were also the master keys of the whole school. Well, no, I hadn't. I hadn't. And she said, you better find them, and fast, or else there'll be consequences. Well, I walked back into our house, crestfallen. Julio, the priest, saw me come in dejected, and he said, what happened? So I told him, you know, I was expecting of him to yell at me, you idiot! Why did you do that? He could easily have told me off. I told you not to tell her. But instead, he shrugged his shoulders, he smiled, and said three words that have stayed with me ever since. He said, no pasa nada in Spanish. It's 
The same as saying, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. The keys, in fact, were handed in the next day. They'd fallen out of my pocket in the school bus on the way home. And as she said, there were consequences. We were asked to leave the janitor's quarters a short time afterwards. And you would have expected that that would have repercussions on me. But Julio didn't recriminate me for my failings. And I remember vividly the relief I felt that day at those words, no pasa nada, and the smile. Three words that meant mercy. I remember how grateful I was that he didn't rub my nose in the dirt, and, I, and it really changed me. It really it renewed the face of the earth. You see, I'd been a real pain to a lot of the people with whom I'd lived in community, sort of like a policeman in my own missionary community. I'd been quick to point out other people's faults, a bit self-righteous, really. Mercy made me into a gentler, kinder, and humbler man. And it gave me an alternative to the temple police pastoral I'd been doing, whereby we act more like policemen than missionaries of mercy. But does that change people? I mean, does it really change people? I believe it does. I think we could sure use a healthy dosage of that sort of mercy in our families, our communities, our parishes. It's always more effective to be patient missionaries of mercy than temple police. Mercy is also a wonderful way, a key to finding helpers in our work of evangelization amongst the families. Some, something I've learned along the hard way, and I've learned along the way, is the truth of two little teachings from Jesus. That is, the one who has forgiven little, loves little, from Luke 7, 47. And the one who loves little, evangelizes even less. It's round about John 21, 17. Well, the Pope had this to say about this year of mercy when he opened the Holy Door at St. Peter's in Rome late last year. He said, this will be a year in which we grow ever more convinced of God's mercy. How much wrong we do to God and his grace when we speak of sins being punished by his judgment before we speak of their being forgiven by his mercy. Those words really made an impact in me. But that's the truth, he says. We have to put mercy before judgment and in any event, God's judgment will always be in the light of his mercy. You know, if we were to go around looking for sinners within the ranks of our family members, as indeed in a parish or an evangelizing community, we wouldn't have to try hard. We'll always find them. Actually, each and every last one of us will be disqualified on that account. But that's precisely where Jesus' mercy kicks in. It helps a lot to know that we can approach Jesus in our miseries? Well, look at how Jesus reacts when that woman with a bad reputation came in, repentant and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. We had that a few weeks ago in a Mass. But look as well at how Simon the Pharisee reacted. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is and what sort of a person it is who's touching him. And what a bad name she has. What's striking is the utter gratitude that she shows Jesus. You know, it appears as if not a word had been spoken between them. Yet this woman knew implicitly that she could approach Jesus and find mercy. How great it would be if everyone could approach us priests in the same way. And she seemed oblivious to the others in the room, to their looks, to their prejudices. 
Jesus is all that matters to her. In our own works of evangelization, we could all do with a dose of that kind of freedom. Simon the Pharisee neither made Jesus nor the woman welcome because she had a bad reputation. She had a moral failings. According to him, Jesus shouldn't have even been associating with her. Jesus, however, wasn't fazed by Simon. He publicly used her sense of repentance to teach us how to recuperate people who have had moral failings. That forgiveness was precisely what capacitated her to humbly serve others, to wash Jesus' feet. It was a foretaste of the Last Supper. Personally, I think it's one of the most important teachings that Jesus gives us. It's a link between receiving mercy and being able to love. About how to rebuild someone fallen by the wayside. The easiest thing for us to do is to accuse people of their faults and failings, but it's a very different thing altogether to try to rebuild them when they cave in the sins. Forgiveness is crucial to evangelization. But how willing are we to forgive others their failings? Small wonder, then, if they wind up showing little love. As Jesus reminds us at the end of that gospel, it's the one who has forgiven little who shows little love. Now remember as, all, as well what Jesus did after the resurrection. He went looking for Peter. Peter had failed Jesus miserably. He was head of the evangelization for that area. <laughs> but just as he had foretold, he failed him. Yet Jesus still goes out looking for him. And in John 21, we read of the I'm going fishing incident, which produced nothing, it caught no fish. And Jesus' merciful words to him and the apostles were to throw the net out to starboard and you'll find something. So they threw the net out and could not haul it in because of the quantity of fish. What did Jesus then say to Peter a little bit later on? He said, Peter, he didn't say to him, Peter, if you are such a good mate of mine, how could you have let me down so badly? Instead, he said, Simon, the sinful version of Peter, if you really love me, then feed my sheep. He won Peter back to him through mercy and big time. And wasn't it Saint Pope St. John the 23rd who used to remind us the old proverb, you catch more flies with a spoonful of honey than with a gallon of vinegar? Hence, my conclusion, if you like, a bit of a meditation, it's just a thought process for me. It's the one who is forgiven little who shows little love and the one who shows little love who evangelizes even less. So if we want our families to evangelize others, if we want them to be domestic churches, we can't miss out on this element. In this year of mercy, we need to realize that one of the most effective means of rebuilding families and parishes and evangelizing them is through mercy. And isn't that also at the heart of the Our Father that we say to each other each Sunday? When I first studied this passage of Scripture many years ago, I remember the lecturer explaining something to me that has remained with me ever since. She told us that the as in the forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us doesn't mean asking God to forgive us in the measure that we forgive others. We'd never get to heaven that way. Basically, the as is a rough translation of the Greek word kai, which is the most common word in the Greek New Testament and has several meanings. Sure, one of them is as. No doubt about it. But it also means so and it means then, meaning it causes something to happen. 
but something follows on from what goes before it. Our forgiveness of one another actually follows on from our being forgiven first by God. It capacitates us to do so. Like in Matthew chapter 4, 19, when Jesus tells the disciples, follow me, again, the Greek word kai comes, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, that by following Jesus, we become what follows. Friends, what we're really asking the Our Father is that the Father forgive us our faults and failings so that we in turn be capable of forgiving others. And that is what Jesus said to the woman in that gospel. And it was his reply to Simon that left him speechless. You guys know it as well as I do. To explain how it works, he gave them the parable of the two debtors. One with a debt of 500 denarii, another with 50. Both were equally unable to pay. Both were equally let off the hook simply because they were unable to pay. And that's God's mercy for us as well. It's upfront, it's unconditional, it doesn't matter about the seriousness of the matter. The damage from even the littlest of sins is impossible for us to rectify by ourselves. God simply forgives because we need it. Otherwise, we'd never get back up on our feet after a fall. But Jesus didn't just stop at that. He then asked Simon the crucial question, which of the two will love him more? And so there you have it. Jesus' real concern wasn't with who was more in debt, but who will love him more. Because it's the one who is forgiven more, who will love more, and as Jesus told Peter, it's the one who loves more, who feeds more sheep. Or maybe we ought to consider a change in our own missionary strategy our evangelization strategy. Why do we try to corner into helping with our own projects of evangelization the people who are already involved in church activities? Who are we looking for? Or the ones who have yet to experience mercy for themselves, perhaps? Maybe we need to think outside the box like Jesus. It's funny, but sometimes I think we prefer to fish in fish ponds instead of going out into the open sea. It's safer. You think you have more chance of catching something. You can do that down on the Murray. They have trout farms down there. Kids and desperate anglers go fishing there. But what do you think Jesus is getting at when he tells us, go out into deep water and let down your, fish, your, your, your nets for a catch? Do you think he's saying, stay within our church circles? Or rather that we try our hand at fishing where the real game is, out on the fringes, on the wide open sea of the world? Maybe the evangelization of our families as well will be more effective if we turn outwards towards the downtrodden and raise them up with the yeast of mercy. Certainly it's a wonderful example to the kids in the family. Maybe then they'll want to help us in our works of evangelization because they've taken the medicine, they've tasted and seen for themselves that the Lord is good. Personally, this has been part of my own process my own personal process of conversion as an evangelizer. I witnessed it in my own parish over the last couple of years. A woman came to me from a fairly exotic sort of past life. Hare Krishnas and all sorts of things. She said she wanted to come back to the church again. She came for a confession, prompted by one of the members of the St. Vincent Paul Society of the parish. Well, that confession was the start of something beautiful, something big. She began to get involved in our parish, she became a catechist, she brought people, nay, she dragged them along to Mass. Her own son did the RCIA program. She recently left for a country town in rural New South Wales because the city life was not helping her family. 
And I could say, sadly, she left us, but I can't. She's now an apostle, and she'll be an apostle for life. And that little country town and its Catholic church now is the beneficiary. Hey, the church is in expansion, and mercy is to blame. But what I've learned is that the most grateful of people become the best of evangelizers. Gratitude for mercy received is the greatest motivator I know of. It's a source of true enthusiasm and of real inspiration, because that's where the words come from. In theos asm, in God, in spirit, in spirit asm. Divine mercy received becomes divine mercy given, as long as we let the Holy Spirit act. So you see, God's mercy isn't just about forgiving people. It's not limited to that. Real mercy seeks to restore them to the place that they might have been in had they not messed things up in the first place. It's about looking beyond the offence to see the utter misery as well as the heart of the person who did them and to respond as Jesus responds. So the Pope has called for this year to be a year of mercy for the whole church. He basically wants the Lord to do us all a favour. He wants for us to experience once again what mercy is as evangelizers, so that we'd be grateful for our vocation, that we act gratuitously instead of exacting the temple tax, and so that we go out to the fringes and not to the fish ponds. That's what Pope Francis keeps reminding us when he said, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting and dirty because it's been out on the streets, rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. Well, may the Holy Spirit guide us all in this work. And to finish with, I'd just like you to pray with me that magnificent prayer to the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit and they shall be created and you will renew the face of the earth, beginning with our own hearts, which is the hardest earth of all the plough. Thank you, and God bless. If you would like more information about what you've just heard, please contact us at info at evangelizeaustralia.com or visit our website evangelizeaustralia.com.